0: Well, when you're in an experience of mania or manic episode, um, it's really everything is heightened and you not, in my experience, you don't sleep much, um, you know, and you're sort of going a mile a minute, um, but you get all these ideas and you feel sort of on top of the world, right? And like you can do anything. And so... People experiencing manic episodes can often create a lot of beautiful art um, and literature in those times. For me, I would write a lot, but um, sometimes the thoughts wouldn't connect. It wouldn't make a lot of sense um, to make sense of it later. But um, during those periods, I would be extremely productive and creative. So it does have some benefits um, in what's an otherwise scary time.
1: Welcome to the Vermont Conversation, I'm David Goodman. Erica Nichols Fraser was like many kids growing up in the resort town of Stowe, Vermont. She loved to snowboard and play hockey, but Erica hid a dark secret. She was at war with food. By eighth grade, she had anorexia, an eating disorder. She was starving herself to death, and her weight dropped below 80 pounds. Erica and her family worked to help her with her eating disorder, but she continued to face other mental health challenges. Depression and anxiety was a constant for her. At the age of 29, Erica was finally diagnosed with bipolar disorder. What Erica guarded as her deeply private struggle is actually common. One in five adults and one in six youth experience a mental health disorder every year, according to the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Only around half of people with mental illness receive treatment, and the average delay between the onset of symptoms and treatment is 11 years. Erica Nichols Fraser, now 34, works for The Valley Reporter, a weekly newspaper that covers the Mad River Valley, where she lives. She shares the story of her journey to save herself in a new memoir, Feed Me, A Story of Food, Love, and Mental Illness. Erica Nichols-Fraser, welcome to the Vermont Conversation.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: I want to start by just asking you, mental illness is so often somebody's biggest secret. They don't want people to know uh, what they're struggling with, and yet... These are so often issues that are happening in plain sight or happening all throughout the community. But um, you decided to reveal your darkest secret and write a book about it. Why did you do that?
0: Well, it's true that there's still a huge amount of stigma around mental illness. And many of us are afraid to tell people that we're not doing okay, and that we're having a hard time. I struggled with that for a long time, and it was finally in uh, 2018 that I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, Uh, and it wasn't until the next year that I began talking about it publicly, and I found that to be really important for my own healing process, as well as for others who need to hear that they're not alone in their struggles.
1: Was it, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like revealing yourself in public. I mean, did you really have to force yourself to do this for so long you'd kept this as your own personal story?
0: Yes, so it was in 2019, in January, when I graduated from the Bennington Writing Seminars. As part of that, I had to give a graduate lecture on some element of literature, and I chose to lecture on representations of mentally ill women in contemporary fiction. And I felt that I really had to get up there and say, this is my experience, that I've spent time in a mental institution, that I understand some of the struggles these authors are writing about and these characters are going through. And it was scary to get up there and do that in front of a lecture hall uh, of other students and professors. Uh, but I really felt that it was an empowering thing, too. And I had a lot of folks come up to me afterwards and thank me for sharing my story and say that it gave them courage to share theirs. So in that way, it's been really uh, an important part of my healing process, learning to talk about it.
1: You tell a lot of what had been family secrets in the story. You tell your own struggles with anorexia, with bipolar disorder, depression, and you tell your family's struggles with your parents' struggles with alcoholism. Was one of those stories harder to tell than the others?
0: None of them were easy to tell. But I think the hardest thing for me was looking at some of the things I was most ashamed of in my own past, some of the mistakes I had made, some of the ways that mental illness had impacted me and my family, and kind of owning up to that and taking responsibility. Uh, you know, and and looking at things that were really difficult for me, periods of time that were really difficult, such as when I had an eating disorder, and um, starting to try to make sense of that. Um, It was a really difficult part of the process, but also a really rewarding one.
1: Well, let's begin at the beginning and go back to kind of your first struggle with mental illness, which was um, around anorexia. And I'm saying it was your first, but feel free to correct me if there was something that— you feel sort of preceded and led up to that?
0: Well, I had always struggled with anxiety and depression from a very young age. But around the age of 13 is when I developed anorexia. And that was the most severe and prolonged experience of mental Ill- health crisis that I had experienced at that time. And uh, you know, my, my depression and anxiety were really coming to a head at that time. I mean, there were, there were hormones and the, you know, traumas of middle school and everything around me. I just really felt lost, uh, extremely depressed, and I really undervalued myself and I think didn't feel like I deserved love or food uh, and essentially stopped eating and had a really difficult couple years.
1: With anorexia, the the thing that is, to me, sort of, um, in your story, baffling, you were a really active teen. You were a, a, a sort of typical Vermont kid. You loved to snowboard. You played hockey on a school team. You needed to be strong. You needed to have strength and endurance to do those things. But anorexia was most certainly undermining your ability to participate in things you loved. You were actually hurting yourself.
0: Absolutely. And that's a hard thing, especially as a young teenager to come to terms with and really understand. But yes, the things that brought me joy, like snowboarding, hockey, running, um, became increasingly difficult and physically painful uh, when I wasn't fueling my body. Um, And there were ways I think of me sort of pretending things were normal, still doing the things that I like to do, but they were incredibly difficult um, to get through at that time.
1: I want people to understand the the depths of what it means to deal with anorexia. You fell below 80 pounds um, as a teenage girl. That's, um, that's incredibly thin. That's mm-hmm. dangerously thin. What was going on in your mind that led you to starve yourself to that degree?
0: I... Well, felt suicidal at the time. I never tried to die by suicide, though some would argue that anorexia is a slow form of suicide. You slowly destroy your body until it shuts down. And so I I really didn't value my life at that time. I really felt like there was something wrong with me, that my feelings um, were some flaw in me, and that um, strength meant that I didn't, couldn't ask for help, you know, couldn't get any help from it, and that I was completely alone. I, I didn't have the words to put to my struggles and my feelings at that age. And so I really couldn't express what was happening in me and resulted in trying to take control of something by stopping eating.
1: What worked to get you—well, I should start by saying a lot of things didn't work. Tell me what didn't work to get you to stop starving yourself.
0: That's right. Well, going to a teen psych ward in a state hospital in New Hampshire um, was not especially helpful to me. It wasn't a place that was specializing in eating disorder recovery, and I was the only teenager there uh, who was experiencing an eating disorder. Uh, Everyone else on the ward um, had attempted suicide, and uh, it really didn't feel like I was getting the support there that I needed. It really scared me from getting help in the future and made me convinced I didn't want to go back to a place like that. So I think it did uh, hamper my ability to ask for help and to seek it. Uh, I would also say that a lot of the the pressure on me to um, to eat, to comply with the nutrition plan, to just be better and to get better and have it be over with um, you know, that I was getting from my family, uh, really didn't help much either. They were trying to be supportive and didn't necessarily know how to, but I really felt like I was sort of being punished for feeling the way I felt. And so it also prevented me from really being able to open up to people about what's going on in me.
1: You tell a remarkable story in Feed Me um, about the role the two ants played in your life and who turned out to be uh, pivotal uh, in... Helping your recovery, though they may not have realized that th- what they were doing would have that kind of impact. Talk about die and low.
0: Yeah, my aunts Low and Die. Um, I've always been extremely close to them; still am to this day. And when I was young, uh, they. Who lived in New York City they allowed me to come visit frequently and uh, they would take me out to shows and to museums and galleries and just really exciting places for a Vermont kid who lived in a small town you know to be exposed to this whole other world and part of that Di was a chef for many years until she retired a few years ago Uh, So part of that was exposing me to food and different foods from around the world, Uh, you know, nice restaurants and and sort of exciting new foods for me that I hadn't experienced. And that helped me kind of connect to food and my body in a way that I had not been doing.
1: But you describe in great detail, and you're a wonderful writer, uh, so this is all very vivid, you know, food repulsed you. Um, Your parents tried mightily to get you to eat high calorie foods, to put on weight. So here's your aunt exposing you to weird foods that you've never had before. And somehow that you were okay with that.
0: Yeah, it was part of that experience of going to New York and trying things different. And uh You know, that pressure really wasn't on me in the same way as it was at home. They enabled me to make my own choices and did, you know, make it clear that I I needed to eat while I was there. And that was part of, you know, getting the opportunity to spend time with them in New York. But it wasn't as as punitive or as sort of, you know, judgmental, I guess, um, as I'd felt in other ways. And so I was able to kind of open up and feed myself and, you know, find that self-care that I needed.
1: What would you say ultimately was the thing that worked that persuaded you, you know, as, as you well know, some people starve themselves to death with anorexia. It, it has a terrible ending, a tragic ending for many people. Um, so what worked?
0: Well, it wasn't just any one thing, but kind of a combination of things. Um, So writing has always helped me and helped me process my thoughts and express myself. So that was a piece of it, writing poetry and writing in my journal. Um, But really, it was the relationships in my life. And as you mentioned, my aunts, Lo and Di, were a huge part of that, just a support system outside of my immediate family that I could talk to, uh, as well as friends who helped really listen and support me. Uh, And ultimately, it was something I had to make a decision for myself that I wanted to live and I wanted to thrive and I wanted to do these things that brought me joy. And, um, you know, eventually I was able to, to sort of come out of that and find, um, find joy and discover how to take care of myself again.
1: There are going to be people listening to this who have a loved one or a friend who is struggling with anorexia. What is your advice to them uh, about how they can be helpful?
0: I think the best thing you can do is listen without judgment and really provide a space for the loved one in your life uh, who's going through a hard time to talk about what's going on in a way that doesn't make them feel like something is wrong with them and really be open to, to providing support. I would also say helping them find resources, whether it's a program or a therapist or someone else who can be there, peer support programs um, who they can um, you know understand and, and talk to um, to them is extremely helpful.
1: Anorexia was the first, but not the last, mental health struggle that you confront and write about. Um, As you get older and go to college, you're dealing with depression, and ultimately what you later learn is bipolar disorder. How did those things kind of reveal themselves to you?
0: Well, depression and anxiety were things that I dealt with from a young age um, throughout periods of my life. And some of the depressive episodes got longer and longer as I went through high school and into college. Uh, And I I do regret not seeking help in college. Um, There were certainly resources available at the school um, that I wish I had um, pursued at the time because I think I could have had a more... um, beneficial experience, ultimately. But uh, it was really in my 20s that I began to experience manic episodes and some of these more prolonged periods of of depression and anxiety. Um, And that came to a head when I was 29. In 2018, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And it felt like I finally was able to make sense of some of the feelings in me. And I had language for it. And there were treatments for it. So that was really a turning point for me, getting that diagnosis.
1: Bipolar disorder is something that um, we now know many people, highly creative, high functioning people, uh, many artists have struggled with. It's been, um, you know, kind of a two edged sword, where one edge is this tremendous creativity, these bursts of inspiration, and the other edge of that sword is destruction, is self uh, destruction. Um, How did that work for you? Um, Where did that, uh, you know, how did mania both hurt and help you?
0: Right. Well, when you're in an experience of mania or manic episode, um, it's really everything is heightened. And you not, in my experience, you don't sleep much, um, you know, and you're sort of going a mile a minute. Um, But you get all these ideas and you feel sort of on top of the world, right? And like you can do anything. And so people experiencing manic episodes can often create a lot of beautiful art um, and literature in those times. For me, I would write a lot, but um, sometimes the thoughts wouldn't connect. It wouldn't make a lot of sense um, to make sense of it later. But um, during those periods, I would be extremely productive and creative. So it does have some benefits um, in what's an otherwise scary time. Explain...
1: um the range of bipolar disorder. The name itself refers to uh, these two poles. So explain what it means and what it feels like.
0: Right. So often people think of bipolar disorder as these wild mood swings, and that can be a piece of it. But really, folks with bipolar experience um, prolonged manic episodes or um, um, panic attacks and anxiety. Um, And so... Uh, It can feel really out of control, like you don't have control of your emotions. You might overreact or become really angry at something really minor. Something might set you off, and you might uncontrollably cry for a long time for a reason you can't explain. Uh, So it can feel extremely frustrating, especially when you don't know what's going on. And it can be scary for the people around you, too. Uh, When I came home from... um, uh, 10 days away in a manic episode, my husband told me about a week later, I feel like you haven't come home yet um, because I couldn't stop talking to myself. I wasn't making any sense. I was convinced that uh, I was getting subliminal messages on the TV. I attempted to write a sort of manifesto of 200 pages that was just really nonsense. Uh, so it, c- it can be a scary time.
1: So you were diagnosed at age 29 What took so long?
0: That's a good question. I think part of it was me and perhaps the people around me just not knowing the signs or knowing what was going on. I remember in my early 20s, my first Real Manic episode I experienced, I started Googling symptoms um, and trying to figure out what felt wrong with me. Um, I felt convinced that something was irrevocably wrong. Uh, And part of that was me feeling really reticent to get help, um, to ask for help, feeling afraid of being judged, uh, feeling afraid that the people in my life wouldn't love me if they felt something was really wrong with me. Um, And um, so it did take a long time for me to ultimately get to that diagnosis, which was a real turning point.
1: What persuaded you to go get help, and what is the help that you now receive that enables you to function with bipolar disorder?
0: Well, I went to the Bennington Writing Seminars for my MFA, and that involved uh, 10-day residencies on campus in Bennington for two years, a total of five residencies. And the first of those three residencies, the first three of those residencies, excuse me, Uh, In the first three of those residencies, I came home manic. There were a lot of triggers um, during the program. I didn't sleep much. I was pacing my room, talking to myself, uh, feeling extremely anxious, having many panic attacks. Uh, So the third time that happened, it didn't stop for a couple weeks. About three weeks I went um, that I was manic. And that really was the breaking point for both me and my husband, in which we both realized I really needed help. Uh, So... The kind of care I received now is I I underwent a lot of therapy. Psychoanalysis was a really important part of that for me, which I underwent for two years, three or four times a week, um, which was a big investment in time and money. It was not covered by insurance, which unfortunately many mental health forms of mental health care are not, um, even for folks who have insurance. Uh, So that was was a real challenge. Um, And then medications have been an important part for me, too, Um, finding the right combination of medications. Um, It was actually quite a process for me. Um, that did involve, as I write about in the book, uh, a car crash when I was um, extremely weary from several different medications that made me very drowsy. So it wasn't an easy transition to find those kinds of help. And I also think having a husband who has learned a lot about how to support me during those times, as well as friends and family I'm able to talk to now about it, have also been hugely helpful for me.
1: One of the cruel parts of a mental illness like bipolar is at a time when you most need support and companionship, you've driven people away. Is that something that you experienced?
0: Yeah, that was certainly the fear. And there were times that I write about that my husband and I had challenges in our relationship, as, largely as a result of my mental illness. Uh, and I, I was terrified that I, I would drive him away, that he wouldn't uh, love me anymore if he saw all the negative parts of me. But fortunately, we, we worked through it. Couples therapy was part of that. Um, but we've really worked hard together at supporting each other, and um, learning how to cope with my mental illness, as well as for him to learn uh, how, to, how to deal with it. Um, and so I have found that most of the people in my life have been very supportive. Um, but that was certainly the fear that I had, that they wouldn't be there anymore if they saw w- what I really felt like.
1: You recently had a, bu- a book launch at The Big Picture in Waitsfield. And your colleague and boss at The Valley Reporter, Lisa Loomis, Um, spoke very touchingly about things that uh, you she had learned from you um, about mental illness about and I and about any number of things how open have you been able to be with employers because I imagine this has been a big challenge for you in holding a job for example
0: Absolutely. Um, there were times when I was worried I would lose jobs as a result of my mental illness, um, particularly in my first mental health episode when I was working in an immigration law firm. I was convinced I'd be fired. I wasn't sleeping. I felt like I was far away from myself dissociating, um, felt like I wasn't the one talking uh, when I was talking to clients or attorneys. Um, so I was convinced that you know that I would be fired and I felt like I had to keep that a secret for a long time. And it wasn't until um, actually w- right before I was diagnosed uh, in 2018, I had a severe manic episode and I came into work. Uh, I was working at the Children's Literacy Foundation at the time and my coworkers were uh, very concerned. I was very clearly manic. My boss, Duncan McDougall, sat me down and said, how can I support you? Um, he asked me to take a little time off um, and come back when I was healthy and ready. Uh, and those coworkers were extremely supportive. and that for me really taught me that I could get that kind of support that I'd never really seen before from an employer or um, coworkers. And so I, I definitely learned um, you know that I could receive that sort of support in the, um, from them. And so now uh, I am very open about it with my, um, with my boss. <laughs> I, I'm able to talk to, to Lisa now and she's been extremely supportive. Um, so when I need help, if I need, to work from home for a day or to, you know, take a little workload off my, or little work off my workload, Um, she's been very helpful in recognizing that and being supportive.
1: What is your advice then to others who struggle with any number of mental illness issues in terms of how they interact with others in their workplace and being open about it?
0: Yeah, well, the first thing to know is the American Disabilities Act does include those experiencing mental illness. So employers by law are required to provide accommodations, um, reasonable accommodations, to allow their workers to be safe and healthy at work. Uh, So to not be afraid of losing your job or not be afraid of getting judged um, for these things that you're experiencing that are very normal and something a lot of people experience. Uh, And learning to be kind to yourself and trying to decide and, and you know, with the help of mental health professionals, what you need in order to to be well. Uh, So that may mean working from home. That may mean taking a walk or having some quiet time alone. Um, It may mean, um, you know, taking some time off if you need it for medical leave. Uh, You know, that we shouldn't be afraid I think for a long time, many of us, and with a stigma around mental health, have been afraid um, that others would judge us, that we might lose our job or friendships or relationships. Uh, And I think that we really need to work at combating that stigma and those fears. And um, talking about our issues uh, is the first step to that.
1: We've spoken here about employers who were sympathetic and where it worked out. Have there been times where being open about your mental health needs, has not had that kind of response?
0: Yeah, I did have a job at one point where I had a really difficult time bringing up my mental health issues. I was really going through, in my 20s, through some challenges, and I didn't feel that I was um, being understood at that time, uh, and I actually had an employer who say who said, all of these things are in your head, um, which really made me feel like I was you know, crazy, quote-unquote, like there was something wrong with me, um, and made me very afraid of asking for help in those accommodations, and that was a very stressful work environment.
1: Erica, one of the striking things about your book is that you're a beautiful writer, and you're really able to express uh, so eloquently some of the things that often, you know, elude people. They they have trouble putting into words the things that are going on inside their mind, And you kind of pull back the curtain for us and explain it in very vivid terms. I wanted you to read just the first paragraph of your book to give people just a flavor of your writing.
0: Sure. This chapter is called Tubs of Grape Jelly and Tricks Popsicles. The wind across the fairy's bow whipped my hair like spun sugar, fine brown strands tangling and sticking in the salt air. I leaned on the rail, my sneakers balancing precariously on the slick bar, pointing at the seals sunning on the wharf's rocks, my dad lightly holding my hips to keep me from slipping into the black water. Gulls swooped and cawed above us, following the ferry from Hyannis to Nantucket.
1: You're introducing us there to your dad, and your family plays a central role in this. Um, I often think it is the fate of the loved ones of a writer that they are going to be written about and have their personal stories sort of eternally be the source of articles, books, and whatnot. Has it been difficult to, you know, a lot of the things you talk about in your family are uh, about the alcoholism that your parents struggle with, you know, really personal challenges, a serious accident that your mother experienced with a traumatic brain injury, which was a result of her alcoholism. What has it been like for you and for them to have you put that out there?
0: Yeah, it's it's scary to put things so vulnerable out there. And I was worried about how some family members and in, in good friends would take things. um, But I've had those conversations with many of them. And my parents and I talked before the book came out. I told them that I really wanted my love and respect and admiration for them to be clear in the book. Um, But I also felt necessary to talk about some of our struggles that are common, that a lot of folks deal with addiction these days, and alcohol addiction specifically, um, and mental health issues. And I felt that it would be dishonest to not talk about some of those issues when telling my own story. And so I did make it clear that this is my version, my side of the story, um, you know, and I felt compelled to tell it. And um, my family did recognize that, you know, this story belongs to me and that they are a piece of that. uh, And they have been supportive.
1: Was it hard for them as well?
0: I think so. I mean, I I can't speak for them. But you know, there have been some um, emotional conversations. But, uh, you know, my parents were at my book launch, uh, and they have been supportive. Uh, So I do really appreciate having those conversations with close friends and family members.
1: So they have read the book? Had they read it prior to publication?
0: I did give them an advanced reader copy, uh, and we have talked a little bit about it, um, but, you know, they, they I think, understand my need to tell my story and how I don't feel it does anyone any good to uh, be ashamed of some of these things and to hide them.
1: And, you know, for what it's worth, what I read into this is, one, a family's struggles with a range of challenges that many, many families deal with. Um, As you mentioned, substance abuse, uh, these are things that are not unique to your family. But what also comes through is a tremendous amount of love and, yes, mistakes that are made in their efforts to support you, (coughs) but done in a way that it's clear how much they are trying, you know, desperately and mightily to get through to their daughter who's in really at times in a very dire health situation. Um, Did thinking about these things, your childhood, the response of your parents, make you, um, I don't know, did it make you at times more sympathetic, angrier? Did it bring up a lot of the feelings that you felt growing up?
0: Uh, writing about this certainly did bring up a lot of feelings, and it was not an easy process. It took about three years, uh, and at times was very emotional, and uh, having a therapist to talk through that with was really helpful for me, um, as well as having my husband and other family members I could go th- you know, talk through it with, and family members who have been through some of these issues with me and could offer insights. Yeah, it's certainly difficult things to write about, but I think that was an important healing process for me, and I think it can really offer um, some support and help to other people who are going through similar issues.
1: Well, let's dive into the book. You organize the book, and really your whole storytelling motif is around food. Uh, The book is divided into three parts. Part one, simmer. Part two, boil. Part three, rest. Why is food the way that you decided to structure your life story?
0: Food has always been important, an important part of my life uh, from the time it had negative implications for me um, as a young person with an eating disorder to now um, when I cook meals every night and my husband and I grow our food and raise chickens and are really intentional about um, what we eat. And so it's been a big part of my healing process, learning to cook and prepare and make foods for ourselves um, as well as for others. And it wasn't until August 2020 that I realized this was the way I was going to structure the book. I had a draft of it at that point. I've been working on it for about a year. And uh, it was not focused on food, just a memoir about my mental health. And I couldn't quite figure out how to structure it and piece it all together. And when I was at the Studio Center in Johnson, I was buttering a piece of bread at lunch, and I started to think of those little pats of butter that they made me eat when I was at the hospital as a 13-year-old. And I wrote a chapter in this book called A Pat of Butter, and I shared it with a friend of mine at the studio center. And she said, maybe you're not writing a memoir. Maybe this is really about uh, the memoir you're writing is really about food. And that sort of started to make sense to me. And I spent those two weeks thinking about how food was central to all of these experiences and how it really brings community together. Uh, and that's been true in a lot of my life. The process of feeding others is so important to my relationships with them. And so it all kind of started to click when I thought of it in that way. And I did organize it into the three parts because it, it's intended to sort of be the process of making food. Simmer is a childhood when things are sort of percolating. Uh, Boil is when things are really bubbling over in my 20s and these mental health issues are really coming to a front. And rest, then, the final part, is sort of about learning how to cope with those issues and coming to a more stable place in my life.
1: I mean, it's such an interesting motif. Uh, You know, your early years, you're at war with food. And food takes on this much larger-than-life significance than it does for most people, you know, for most people to pick up a sandwich and eat it, it's almost unthinking. But for you, it was the subject of excruciating amount of thinking. How did you ultimately make peace with food?
0: I think it's been a long process. Um, and, you know, we talked about my aunt's Lo and die and what a role they played in that in helping me discover good foods and learning how to prepare them. Um in my 20s, my husband, my then boyfriend and I, now husband, and I um, had potlucks at our um, apartment every week, and that really brought our community together and um, you know, allowed us to really connect with people on a deeper level. And that has continued to be my experience of cooking with others and sharing meals together really helps build those relationships and enrich them. So you know, it's been a, a years long process of really coming to a place where, I love food. I appreciate it. I appreciate, you know, the nourishment and sustenance it gives us. And I think that it really is a way to build community.
1: Where do you see yourself going with your relationship with food?
0: Well, I see myself continuing to cook pretty much every day and, and feed my husband and, and whoever's at the house. Um, you know, I, I love to make meals. Um Just trying new things, exploring, you know, continuing to create our own food and and share it with others is, you know, all I really want to do.
1: Do you ever encounter, I mean, people's issues with food take a lot of forms, anorexia being the most extreme that I can think of. But you know, a lot of people struggle with their relationship with food, feeling like they need to gain weight or lose weight or whatever Own body image issues what are you able to offer to those people in your food or in your words to enable them to make peace with food
0: yeah it's it's not an easy process for many people i mean in terms of offering food i love to cook healthy and sometimes you know rich and comforting foods for friends and family uh, if they're going through a hard time i like to deliver meals you know and, and give them something nourishing uh, and in terms of words and support i mean i encourage folks to accept themselves and to, you know, love themselves and learn how to take care of themselves. Proper nutrition and enjoying food is a big part of that. Uh, We all need food. We all eat. It's an important part of our lives. Uh, And so it's something that you do need to make peace with. And that isn't always easy. Um, But learning how to really, you know, take care of yourself and eating good local food and having that relationship to where your food comes from, I think is a big part of that.
1: I wonder if you've encountered anyone in your you know, travels as an adult who is dealing with anorexia and if you've been able to kind of connect with them in some meaningful way.
0: Yes, I've talked with many folks who've uh, dealt with anorexia and other forms of eating disorders and um, I had a good friend in college who was struggling with it, and uh, she and I decided to go on a little road trip together and spent about six hours in the car just talking about it. Um, and mostly I just listened to what she was going through and offered her that support and my own perspective of you know how I'd come to heal. And she's told me that that was a huge moment for her in her healing, um, in which just having someone who understood Being able to talk to you. So I think that is really important. Finding someone, peers who understand what you're going through, um, you know, and finding community uh, can really help you realize you're not alone and help you find those tools you need to help recover.
1: Mental health is a journey, not a destination. This is ongoing work for you. What do you do on an ongoing basis to maintain your equilibrium and your mental wellness?
0: Uh, Well, medications are a big part of that for me, finding the right medications to help, you know, balance out my emotions. Uh, Exercise is also a part of that. I still love to snowboard. I love to run. um, You know, I love playing sports. I play soccer locally and hockey. Um, So that's a big part. And for me, especially those um, sports you can do with friends, um, you know, really help. Um, create a community and help you, um, help me anyway, f- feel balanced. Uh, reading and writing are a huge part of that for me, have always been a place of comfort. Uh, reading, whether it's fiction or poetry, and writing to express myself and connecting with others around reading and writing um, and building that commu- literary community has been really important too. And then also having my animals around me. Um, my dogs are very soothing. Um, you know, They always help cheer me up if I'm having a down day. Um, and, of course, my the love and support of my husband and my family.
1: You have a very important job these days. You are a local reporter for The Valley Reporter, which is the weekly newspaper of the Mad River Valley. Uh, I know it well. Living in Waterbury, we're uh, just outside the valley, but The Valley Reporter is part of our informa- my information ecosphere. So as part of your job, you know, you're— out taking the pulse of the community in a variety of fora, school boards, select boards, DRBs, uh, what have you. What are and you know, and it's also a part of that. You see a lot of local conflict, uh, local peacemaking of sorts. What strikes you about the work that you do, the rhythms of the community that you cover? Um, give us that perspective of a local reporter and what you see.
0: Yeah, from my perspective, I think that newspapers and media and local reporting is so important to our communities, especially in small town Vermont, you know, where we may feel disconnected in some ways. um, But you can pick up the paper or go online and learn about what's happening in your community. Uh, For me, having that role as a reporter has really helped connect me more to my community. I've met so many folks doing interesting things here. I've made a lot of friends through my reporting, uh, and I've really gotten to know more about what makes our community tick, um, and the people that really make it special. Uh, so, uh, just this week, you know, I got to talk to a local girl, uh, a Warren student who, um, Played at Frozen Fenway uh, recently, you know, and got to play ice hockey, um, which as an ice hockey player just sounds so cool. So I get to connect with people um, from kind of all over um, the community. And um, I do think that it's critical to support local journalism um, and to, to keep it alive in our, in our small towns.
1: There's a challenge in being both a member of a small community and covering the small community. You know, a lot of these characters. What is some of the hard parts about your job?
0: Yeah, I mean, writing for journalism is very different than creative writing, right? And um, you don't have a lot of room to put your own opinions in there. So sometimes you need to kind of keep them aside and try to write the facts um, and be fair and knowing that, you know, these are people I'm going to have to see in the community and interact with, you know, so never trying to to disparage someone. Um, you know, I think some of the challenges of just being a small staff and a small, um, you know, newspaper is trying, is, you know, stretching ourselves out across lots of different fields um, from, as you said, covering select board meetings and school board meetings to going to local events to talking to interesting, you know, local people. Um, you know, it can be a challenge to kind of keep up with and to write, you know eight ten articles a week you know and do so accurately and thoroughly you know is definitely a challenge
1: what are some things that you want people to take away from your story in feed me
0: I want them to know that they're not alone and that there's help out there for people who are struggling with mental illness or have someone in their family or um, friends who, who are struggling, uh, that these are very common problems that a lot of people deal with, you know, and that it's not that something is wrong with them, you know, and for those who have someone in their life who's dealing with mental illness, um, to know to support them without judgment and just uh, listen to them openly and not make them feel like, you know, they need to snap out of it or act a certain way or just put on a happy face, but really be there for them. You know, I think those are some of the most important things and that, that you can ask for help and that you can get it.
1: So often people, loved ones are in the position of wondering if how much of a problem something is that they're seeing Somebody's a little down. Are they depressed and need to see a clinician, perhaps need medication? Someone seems to struggle with food. Is that cross a line into, you know, kind of pathology of some sort, an eating disorder? Um, Somebody seems to have pretty intense highs and lows. Is that bipolar disorder? What would you say about understanding you know whether something crosses a line of mental illness or is just part of the daily rhythms of life
0: well there are certainly a lot of resources out there and research that can help you identify some of those signs and determine if something really is a problem Uh, I would encourage folks in Vermont to look into NAMI Vermont, which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness, N-A-M-I Vermont, which is a great resource here. And they offer peer support programs um, for family members and friends to learn more about mental illnesses and how to support people in their lives. They actually have Mental Health Advocacy Day on January 30th this year, uh, um, which is happening on Zoom this year. It was previously in the State House, where they bring together a lot of advocates and folks to learn about real lived experience, lived experiences of Vermonters, um, both from the experience of those experiencing mental illness as well as those with friends and family members to offer support and to educate. Um, so those are some of the first steps you can take to really learn more about it. Also, just trying to offer a space for that person to talk to, um, you know, and, and feel like they're not going to be judged. And for me, one of the most important things that happened was actually my now husband, suggesting that I see a therapist um, when I was in my early 20s. And I was initially resistant to that, given my early experiences with mental health care, um, and felt like he just didn't want to, to listen to me and deal with me. But it ultimately was the most supportive thing he could have done to say, I remember he said, there are things you need that I can't help you with. And he recognized that, that things had escalated to a level where it was beyond his awareness or ability to um, to process it alone, so um, he encouraged me to find help, and I ultimately did, and that was a huge, huge turning point for me.
1: That's quite a uh, a sign of love and bravery, because um, that could end badly. Telling a partner that uh, you think they need, you know, professional help. Why were you able to receive that without falling apart? Or maybe you did fall apart for a little while.
0: I did fall apart at first. I I think I really had that, like, I just need to deal with this on my own mentality. And I was really terrified that, you know, this is my first long-term serious relationship um, with someone I really saw a future with. And I was very afraid that he would leave if he saw these parts of me and um, wouldn't want to handle it or would deal with it. And, um, ultimately it was the most, you know, we had several conversations, but he was able to approach it in a very logical way. He's very, um sort of level-headed person and does his research and says, here are some resources, here are some things we could try. Uh, and so he he really did support me in that. And it took a while for both of us, I think, to learn how to work together um, to get through some of these mental health issues. Uh, it wasn't an easy process, but ultimately he was supportive and there for me, and I think that's a huge part of me getting to where I am today.
1: You took a chance in telling your story um how people would respond to it. I wonder if there's just one or two examples of things you've heard since uh, Feed Me has come out that have let you know that uh, it was all right to tell this story.
0: Yeah, I've heard from a lot of people, friends, family members, people I don't even know, um, telling me that it really touched them and taught them a lot about their own experience or something someone in their life is going through. Um, One recently was a family member uh, sent me a message and said that the book had inspired her to talk to her partner about some of her own mental health issues that she shouldn't, didn't feel like she had the words for. And she felt that I had given her the words to talk about it. Um, and that was uh, really rewarding to hear that she was getting help and learning how to have these conversations with her partner um, because of something that I had written and the way that I had been able to talk about it. Um, so that for me was a, you know, huge success to know that I reached someone out there, um, you know, who, needed to see, you know, that it can get better and that they can take steps to care for themselves in their relationships.
1: Well, Erica Nichols-Fraser, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation and sharing your story.
0: Thanks so much for having me.